Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This is the John Fugelsang Podcast. This is SiriusXM Progress. I'm John Fugelsang. Just as human bodies face infectious diseases or viruses, human minds face infectious ideas. We are living in a time of misinformation and disinformation and media culture that doesn't want to call lies lies. The same media culture that will spread lies if it helps with clicks and ratings. A time of AI and chat GPT, a time of troll farms and ceaseless big lie propaganda. The question is, how can we keep infections from warping our thinking? I am so pleased to welcome Andy Norman to the show. He is the award-winning author of Mental Immunity, Infectious Ideas, Mind Parasites, and the Search for a Better Way to Think. You may have read his stuff in Psychology Today, Scientific American, Psychiatric Times, Skeptic, Humanist. He's been on everything from NPR to the Joe Rogan Show. And his research is all about the mind's immune system and using the emerging science of mental immunity as an antidote to disinformation, propaganda, hate, and division. It's a real pleasure to welcome Andy Norman to SiriusXM. Thank you, John. You summed that up so beautifully. Uh, I'm not sure you need me here. That that was that was it. <laughs> I'm a I'm a fan of what you're doing with the the mental immunity project. You're you're really trying to reduce the public's susceptibility to bad information, to uh, pseudoscience or conspiracy theories or propaganda or just plain old lies, like we used to call them. But but your whole contention is that you you can dispel this by equipping people with skills to be able to identify and reject lies and manipulative content. Yeah, like about a century ago, we learned how to, uh, in, a, in essence, educate our body's immune systems to fight off new diseases. And that's what vaccines do. Vaccines actually teach your immune system how to fight off things it hasn't developed antibodies for. Well, we're learning now that the mind has a, an immune system of its own, and we can teach it how to better spot and shed problematic ideas and problematic information more generally. So it's an exciting time in the science because it's showing us how we need to adapt to this brave new digital world we have where everybody's jacked into the internet and we all too readily catch what amount to mind infections. Call them lies, yeah. call them disinformation, call them what you like. But in essence, they're mind infections, and we're learning better how to protect our mind. But your <laughs> mental immunity project, it, it, it models human cognition as vulnerable to these mental virus attacks. But you, you maintain that our mind does its best to shed it, as you said, and that our mind can actively monitor our thoughts 
for the false and harmful and, as you say, infectious stuff. I mean, how yeah. how do we begin to define this mental immune system? And, and how do we, I mean, this is what your whole work is, but how do we begin to train our minds just to recognize it, much less filter it out? Yeah. Well, let me give you a short answer that cuts right to the heart of it. You hear a new piece of information and some qualms creep into your mind. You might experience a couple of doubts. Or there's a little voice in the back of your head that's saying, eh, something's not quite right here. Those doubts, those qualms, those are your mind's antibodies. Doubts are literally the antibodies of the mind. And we need to learn to listen to them because often they're trying to flag stuff that really is problematic. And if you tune out those doubts, you become more susceptible over time to nonsense and falsehoods and lies. And if you tune into those doubts and give them their due, you can become more and more immune, which is to say wiser. Mm. And that's the key to becoming wiser in this uh, wacky new digital age we have. What is the Goldilocks zone? Hmm. So just as the body's immune system can underreact, right? So we, we talk about immune deficiencies. So sometimes the body's immune system fails to respond to a genuine threat. And that's a problem. Mm. But the body's immune system can also overreact to an imagined threat. So when your nose runs uh, at allergy season, that's your body's immune system overreacting to something that isn't truly dangerous. Right. You know, right? It's so uh, go please. So go the Goldilocks is the spot between those, um, right? Uh, Goldilocks uh, tried to find the spot that was neither too hot nor too cold, but just right. The immune system has to find balance between trust and suspicion that keeps our thinking straight. Because if you get hyper suspicious or hyper trusting, you become altogether too easy to take advantage of. You know, I, I appreciate that because I was just on a different radio show a few minutes before I joined you. And I was listening to a clip of a woman who was uh, interviewed at a political rally. And she was talking about a certain public figure who is a former reality TV show host and a successful hat salesman and was talking all about mm -hmm. how this individual was sent by God and is a man of God and is furthering the work of God. And as someone who's yeah. actually read the parts of the Bible that God appears in, I thought, my God, it's it's really hard to argue that people like this aren't infected with yeah. brain worms. And we talk all the time about how certain kinds of cable news has infected the minds of our older parents or grandparents. And it really does seem mm -hmm. that it's not really different than any kind of propaganda movements we've heard of, uh, you know, regimes do in the past. It's just now it's done on a corporate level. And we watch it in between yeah. commercials, which are also little propaganda vessels. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, it's it's worse than than you, you said it beautifully, but it kept, but it's even worse than that. Not only can ideas infect our minds. So ideologies are a prime example of a set of ideas that just kind of hijack a mind in certain ways and take it over and, and refuse to let it change. But it's worse, worse than that, because bad ideas can actually turn your mind's immune system um, against later arriving information, sorry, later arriving evidence. So mm -hmm. genuinely reliable evidence arrives after an ideology has hijacked your mind and you're likely to just brush it off. Right. That's your, the ideology repurposing your mind's immune system to protect itself at your expense. 
Yeah, it does. And it's interesting because I think that once people are susceptible to these viruses, they then become more susceptible to more viruses. It does seem like it can Absolutely. have a snowball effect. We we were talking not too long ago with uh, an expert on flat earth society people and how the flat mm-hmm. earth society meetings have become a hotbed for white supremacists looking for vulnerable minds that they can bring over to join their fold. I mean, it's one thing to be and, susceptible and to propaganda. Understand. Please. Oh, no, forgive my interruption. I did, you're quite right. They understand that people who are susceptible to some mind viruses also tend to be more susceptible to other ones. So the best place to prospect for flat earth theorists is at a conspiracy theory conference or, or an uh, evangelical place where everybody takes things on faith. Um, yes. There's been rigorous research now that shows that if you indulge in wishful thinking or willful believing in one aspect of your life, that makes you more susceptible to misinformation in other parts of your life. It's really true. And it makes you more susceptible to, I would say, mental predators who know this and understand this science and seek to take advantage of it. You know, we had 3000 Americans dying per day of a novel coronavirus. And after a vaccine came out, that number has dwindled down considerably. The objective mind would say, clearly, the vaccine worked, not perfect, but you're not losing 3,000 Americans a day to this respiratory disease anymore. And yet we see the same friends of ours and loved ones who are so often susceptible to these kinds of ideas become infected, as you put it, with the vaccine propaganda. You said uh, in an interview, it's hard not to be angry with those refusing to take the vaccine because they are endangering the lives of others. And I agree, but I do try to have compassion to understand how a discerning person could be conditioned to that place. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think there are a lot of factors involved. I mean, the prospect of, of someone pushing a needle into your arm and injecting you with something that you don't really understand that can be a scary proposition. And the fears people experience um, enlist reasons in their in their support to, so vaccine denial springs from the emotion of fear or distrust, but Which it'll marshal all the reasons. And it'll, I mean, somebody who's fundamentally distrustful of the medical establishment or big pharma, it's, it's really easy to go online and find a hundred reasons not to take the coronavirus vaccine. It's very easy to to rationalize a conclusion that you feel is true. What's really hard is to actually set aside the feelings and think clearly about what what really is true um, and then uh, let the feelings fall where they may. That's harder, but it's a discipline that can keep your mind relatively healthy. And I want to ask about the discipline, but let me ask one more dumb question first, if I could, because you've explained really beautifully in your work how people, smart people, reject science in favor of online conspiracy theories. Are Mm -hmm. certain folks just more susceptible to believing misinformation than others? Absolutely. Um, So there are in what the science tells us is that intuitive thinkers are more susceptible than people who learn to over to distrust their intuitions to some degree and instead substitute cool headed thinking. So if you learn to reflect and revise your intuitions, you become less susceptible. There's a lot of research to suggest that people who are desperate or despairing are more susceptible. 
So yeah. there's something about feeling like it's all going to hell in a handbasket or the world has handed you a raw deal that makes yeah. you more susceptible. These give people very powerful emotional reasons for believing false and destructive things. And that's what makes it so hard to combat. We're going to take a very quick break. We'll be right back. This is Progress. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Welcome back. I'm curious, what is it about conspiracy theories that allow some of them to just infect the minds of very intelligent people so successfully? I was just talking with an author friend on our show last week about a mutual acquaintance who's a very well-known comedian, a funny, sharp, satirical guy who wound up being one of the rioters on January 6th. I, I, it still shocks me. I, I, I've tried to understand it. It just sort of seems like it's a combination of telling people what they want to hear at the right times when they're just vulnerable enough. That's part of it. But one of the really fascinating features of a conspiracy theory is that it gives you a ready-made pat answer to explain away anything that might discredit it. You're so right. if, if evidence against my conspiracy theory comes along, that was planted by the conspirators, right? So especially broad sweeping conspiracy theories have have a built-in defense mechanism they can explain mm. away anything that might that might threaten or disturb them mm. um think about there's something comparable going on when you think about uh you, you've seen the movie the matrix yes right so so there is at least a theoretical possibility that we're all in a matrix and everything we experience is a giant simulation now what evidence do you have that that's not true <laughs> exactly. Any evidence you could imagine could, in principle, be simulated, right? Exactly. So here's a, a, a global hypothesis that it's, in principle, impossible to falsify. And conspiracy theories are a lot like that. And when, you, when they become, in principle, impossible to falsify, it's kind of like anything goes. Like, the, there's no accountability any longer. So philosophers have been wrestling with problems like this for a long, long time. Um, and so we've played with versions of this that, and come to realize how conspiracy theories work. That's Descartes, right? I mean, he said, I cannot prove that right. I'm not, I, I could be strapped to a table right now and someone is injecting me and simulating all of this and I'm hallucinating the world, but it's still me. I think, therefore I am. It literally, that line literally comes from the very scenario you're discussing. 
Exactly. Yeah. In Descartes' time, he didn't have the idea of computers simulating, but he had he imagined a powerful demon that can simulate everything that, in your experience, yeah. or imagine <laughs> the possibility of you're dreaming everything. Yeah, he was right. Real. He was right. There's powerful demons at play here. Um, you you've said that that <laughs> the people who are prone to conspiratorial thinking share some similar traits. They they are often low in intellectual humility, rely more on intuition. Than analytical thinking, and and this is one I found uh, rather fascinating. Speaking as someone who comes from a very religious background and the child of two ex-clergy members, um, people who are prone to conspiratorial mm -hmm. thinking have a need for certainty, and they prefer simple answers for complex events. That reminds me of a yes. lot of folks we all know and love, and I alone can fix this. I think you put your finger right on the heart of this. When uncertainty makes you uncomfortable, and you try to paper over it with false platitudes that just make you that make the discomfort or make the uncertainty go away. You're essentially hiding the problem and you're putting yourself on a collision course with reality. A far better strategy is to learn how to grow comfortable with doubt. Um, realize that doubts are your mind's immune systems. They're your friends. They're trying to help you spot the bad stuff. Yes. Listen to them. Learn to live with them. In fact, one of the things we know from Particle physics is that the world is profoundly, deeply, inherently uncertain in ways that are in principle impossible to eliminate. I mean, we can eliminate some uncertainty, but the uncertainty runs so deep that to become well adapted in this world, you need to become comfortable with doubt and uncertainty. Absolutely. And the healthiest minds uh, revel in doubt and uncertainty because it means there are learning opportunities. Right? Oh. Every time you come across a doubt or uncertainty, that's a chance to learn or unlearn something yes. important. Yes, I'm raising a child right now. You have no idea how, how relevant this is. <laughs> but your your work is all about learning habits of your mind to keep your, your mental immune system grounded. And your work is about being able to free ourselves from, from manipulative and fake information. What are some of the ways that those who know how tend to spot or disregard sketchy information? How do people with well-functioning mental immune systems begin the process of being able to shrug off the bullshit, if you will? Yeah, how do they do it? Um, I'll mention a few things, but I'll, I, I want to point your listeners to our website, The Mental Immunity Project, where we list 10 basic habits of mind that are really powerful ways to keep your mind, to make your mind less susceptible. If you grasp each one, and just try to practice it in your day-to-day -day life, you'll gradually grow less susceptible over time. So here's a couple examples. I mentioned listen to your doubts, respect your yes. doubts. That's one of them. I like to say shed the sense of entitlement. So one of the things that we repeat endlessly is everyone is entitled to their opinion. Now, this is true from a legal standpoint. We don't want big brother governments telling us what we have to believe. But it doesn't mean that we're in morally entitled to believe whatever we like. There are plenty of beliefs that are problematic, not just because they might harm ourselves, because they can harm other people. Yes. Right? If I believe that, that vaccines are a giant conspiracy and I don't vaccinate my kid and my kid dies, I've harmed somebody else because of my beliefs. We're responsible for the things we do that impact the well-being of others. And believing is one of those one class of things. So. I think we all need to get past the idea that we're entitled to, to believe whatever we like. It's yes. important to bring an ethical responsibility 
into the domain of thinking and believing. We should believe things because it's the right and responsible thing to believe, not because it gratifies our our desires in one fashion well, you, or another. You've said um, belief is like love. It can be blind. And the challenge is to, to treat, you've said this beautifully, treat your worldview as opportunities, not threats. When something challenges your worldview, it's not a threat to your safety and security. It's a chance for you to learn and grow. And as you've said, the mind's immune system can freak out and attack the bearers of conflicting information. It's up to us mm -hmm. to calm it down so we can learn from that information. Beautiful. Well, you, these, you, you, you put that so well. Just treat challenges as learning opportunities rather than threats. And you can keep and, and you'll not freak out when conflicting information comes along. Yeah. Challenges are good things. Respect them, value them, cherish them. Well, you talk about inoculating the mind and, and, and to debunk these things. And you have one of my new favorite phrases, uh, pre-bunking <laughs> these things. Can you can you give us some examples of, of how techniques like pre-bunking have neutralized mm -hmm. bad information? Yeah. So pre-bunking is, is a fun word for mind inoculation, basically. But here's a couple neat examples. When the in the run-up to the Ukraine war, the Biden administration learned that Putin was planning to invade. They also learned that Putin was planning a big public relations campaign to sell the world on a false narrative of Ukrainian aggression. Yeah. They got this information and they thought, what do we do about this? Some of their team had heard of inoculation research, of mind inoculation research. And the basic advice is get the false story out there with safeguards around it saying, hey, everybody, watch out. False narrative coming. Don't be schnookered. Don't be a sucker for this story that Putin's about to tell you. The Biden administration got that story out months before the invasion happened. And when Putin's um, disinformation campaign kicked in, it fell utterly flat. The yeah. huge bulk of the world's population saw through Putin's lies and now opposes his war of aggression against Ukraine. And it's largely because the Biden administration successfully pre-bunked Putin. Let me bring it closer to home. I mean, Donald Trump made it clear he was going to claim the 2020 election was rigged months and months in advance. And he had this fake narrative and he began selling it for months in advance. And as you put it, he knew that simple and emotionally charged messages can hijack minds. And Trump repeated his claims again and again. How did the yes. Department of Homeland Security uh, get involved in pre-bunking? some of his disinformation. Yeah. So the Department of Homeland Security saw that Trump was peddling a disinformation campaign about uh, his big election lie, that the Democrats were going to steal the election. He started pounding that drum months before the election happened, long before he had any or even could have any evidence to that effect. The Department of Homeland Security worried that election workers around the country would get bamboozled by this and possibly express doubts or qualms about the integrity of the process in ways that undermine faith in American democracy. So they actually did workshops for election workers all over the country that employed pre-bunking techniques saying, watch out for these false narratives. Don't be taken in by them. It's terribly important that you as an election official not be confused by the disinformation campaign. And there's a fascinating account of how the science on this was actually applied to help save American democracy in, in the year 2000. 
your listeners can find it in a podcast called The War on Pineapple. It's wonderful. I mean, the Department of Homeland Security told Donald Trump that the 2020 election was the most secure in American history. But more importantly, they told the American people this. That was their form of pre-bunking. You're right. That's right. And, uh, and of course, we have to be careful about government-sanctioned pre-bunking. There's always a concern that the government might weaponize these same techniques, right, and become Orwellian. I don't think that's happened under the Biden administration by any means. And Jim Jordan seems to be seems to see an Orwellian pretender under every rock. So every, everybody like me who studies mis and disinformation pisses <laughs> off Jim Jordan because he wants to be able to continue peddling his lies. Oh, everyone who actually reads Orwell uh, pisses off Jim Jordan, too. I know what you're talking about. Uh, everyone should go to the Mental Immunity Project website to, to learn more. But before I let you go, I, I want to ask you one more thing about practical things we can do. And I, I, I love what you do. I think it should be taught in public school. But we've developed, I'm sorry, you've developed this guide to mental immune health. And you identify, as you said, the 10 key habits of mind, the principles of mental immune system care. The one I wanted to ask you about before we leave is that we should monitor our motives for believing. That's really yes. the core of all of this, isn't it? Our motives for believing, yeah. not so much the things we believe, but why we want to believe the things we believe. Yeah, that's right. The, uh, what we want to believe too often clouds and colors our judgment. And what the best thinkers in the world, the best science, when you study science, you learn how to sideline your wants and let your beliefs be shaped by the evidence alone. That's a terribly important discipline. And we all need to learn to think like scientists in that way. Um, so, yeah, uh, keep track of why you believe things. And if the reasons are emotional, or social or financial, discount those beliefs by a hefty amount and see if you can find an alternative that's actually evidence-based rather than motive-based. Andy Norman is the award-winning author of Mental Immunity, Infectious Ideas, Mind Parasites, and the Search for a Better Way to Think. I highly recommend Mental Immunity. Makes a great holiday gift as well. And do yourself a favor and go to the mentalimmunityproject.org. What's the best way for our listeners to follow you, sir, besides the website and keep uh, up with all your work? Thank you. Yeah. I have a personal website, andynorman.org, um, and people can learn more about both my book and some of my other projects there. Appreciate your uh, having me on the show, John. It's been a real pleasure. You're, you're a wonderful interview. Oh, you're very kind. But as someone who, uh, you know, my mother spent many, many years as a, as a nun, and it was only 20 years after she left, she was finally able to call the experience a cult. And I understand very well how susceptible and warm and comforting and um, even ennobling these sort of mindsets can feel. And I'm not against faith. My mother wasn't either, not against religion as well. But I think the work you're doing is very vital to help save democracy and to help save families, because a lot of us have loved ones who have just been radically changed by an Australian businessman with access to the airwaves. So I thank you so much, Andy Norman. And uh, again, the book is Mental Immunity, Infectious Ideas, Mind Parasites, and the Search for a Better Way to Think. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll be right back. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting. 
But Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give, but what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are too. I've tried so many bras in the past, and the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough, to the point where they felt slouchy. I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. Shop Skims bras at skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select Podcast in the survey, and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. Hey all, Glenn Kirshner here. Friends, I hope you'll join me on my audio podcast, Justice Matters. We talk about not only the legal issues of the day, but we also talk about the need to reform ethics in our government. Here's one example, the oath of office. You know the one. I do solemnly swear to support and defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. Let's add 22 words to that oath. Quote, and I will promptly report any instances of crime and or corruption by government officials and employees of which I become aware. Friends, our democracy is worth fighting for. Join us in this fight, because justice matters. Look for Justice Matters wherever you ordinarily find your podcasts. Welcome back. It is a great honor to welcome back to the show one of our favorite documentary filmmakers. Uh, Evgeny Afanivsky is an Oscar-nominated director who made the film Winter on Fire, Ukrainians Fight for Freedom, which is available to stream on Netflix. We first met him when he joined us for his 2017 documentary, Cries from Syria, which won Best Director at the Critics' Choice Documentary Awards and is one of the best war documentaries I've ever seen. His film, Francesco, was about Pope Francis, but was really an unsparing look at the most pressing issues of the 21st century, and none of that will prepare you for the brutal power and heartbreaking grace of his new film, Freedom on Fire, Ukraine's Fight for Freedom. The one film of the year I wish every American could be mandated to see. It's a film shot on the ground in Ukraine during the invasion that brings the horrors of this war in a way few films have dared. A hospital corridor where patients are laid out for their safety away from windows. Little girls trapped underground in bunkers singing rhymes in the darkness. A heavily pregnant woman carried on a stretcher who we later learn has died. The visuals in this film are unforgettable. Ukraine is a founding member of the UN and declared its freedom in 1991. And throughout the film, consistently, it's the humanity and the bravery of the Ukraine people that will inspire and astonish you. The film is screened at festivals around the world, and Pope Francis himself just screened the film at the Vatican. It is a great honor to welcome, joining us from Kiev, Evgeny Avanivsky. Welcome back and congratulations on a beautiful film. Thank you. Thank you so much, John. And thank you for all these beautiful words for uh, all my work that I'm trying every day to bring to the world and educate people. Well, I, I thank you for making it. Um, we worry a lot that there are some Americans who are forgetting the war in Ukraine and there are some Americans in power who want us to forget the war in Ukraine. One of the things that you've emphasized in the media and in this film is that this war began long before Putin actually marched troops 
into Ukraine in February of 2022. And I want to thank you for that. My, my wife told me when she came back from Ukraine that people considered themselves European there. Uh, not Russian, but European. And your film begins with an animated summary of Ukraine's history, beginning a thousand years ago through wars and occupations. And it seems that that is the point you are trying to stake out, that Ukraine became its own distinct country long before Russia tried to swallow it up again. Yeah, and it's true. Because you know what? I think Ukrainians is aware of their culture and aware of their history. And they know why they're fighting for their freedom, why they're fighting for their rights to be free and independent, because they know that they've been once a long time ago, they've been there and they want to be again free and not uh, connected to former Soviet Union. So that's what, what they're fighting for. And that's the future that they're looking for, to be a part of the European Union, to be a part of the free society, democratic society. I think for Americans, we need to remind them that today people taking things for granted, specifically Americans, they're taking things for granted. And it's important to remind that, yes, funding fathers of United States fought for these rights, paid with their lives. Today, Ukraine paying for this huge price on a daily basis. And what is important also, John, they're paying for the entire world. Because yes. I think American people don't understand that Putin already operates on our soil. And I think what, uh, like you said, some of the politicians don't want us to know that technically Putin been already operating on our soil, that he is enemy of our state and enemy of the rest of the world. And I think what I'm trying to emphasize through my movies, through my gentle messages, through the great resilience of Ukrainian people, through their example that unity is important element that we are missing in our society, that in today's world, we are already in World War III, and that propaganda is a part of this hybrid war that we're experiencing today. And it's already in our soil as well as in the European Union. And we are already all involved into this war against one enemy. But the only one country that fighting for this physically is Ukraine. That's it. And one of your interviewees, a fighter, says in the film that he believes Crimea went for Russia primarily because of the older generation, that it was almost nostalgia for their Soviet childhoods. Do you agree? Is it going to be hard for Putin in the years to come to hang on to Crimea? I think that is his weakest link right now. And I think in a minute, uh, Crimea is going back. I think that's going to be the hardest for him to justify all this uh, full-scale invasion and the special operation, how he called it. But at the end of the day, I think in a minute Crimea goes back to Ukraine and it will happen. I think for him it will be the situation with a lot of consequences. This is a film that will make audiences love Ukrainian people and culture. And you open the film in a bomb shelter with a stand-up set. Someone has a microphone and a stand and they're actually doing an act in a bomb shelter, ridiculing not just Putin, but ridiculing the Russian army itself. It's an act of incredible disobedient resilience and it's a sign that ukrainian culture has taken hold if ukraine wanted to be russian they'd vote for it so you establish the premise right off the ground about the injustice of this slaughter i'm wondering what was your experience when you first heard about the invasion in february of 2022 
And how long did it take you to assemble this astonishing 43 filmmaker team capturing footage? So it was disbelief. It was disbelief. And in the same time, I think it took some time to accept this fact that we are in a full-scale war. And then calls, calls to all the team that I was working in Vinchon Fire and certain rearrangements, certain uh, research, how I can get in, what we can do. And literally in the next few days, we started to film. We started to assemble more people. Because remember, Vinchon Fire, it was 93 days around square of Maidan in one city. So it was much easy and much kind of, uh, it's the more easy task. It's not for the war zone. But here you had four points of entry into the, basically four points of attack on the country from four different uh, entries. And it's needed twice more bigger team. So you can have more boots and more eyes on the ground. So you can have a comprehensive story. So for one side, I was lucky because I had experience working in Ukraine. I had all the proper contacts. Uh, I had ability to reach people and the governments whom I need for sure to support me because I needed all the proper permits. We're in a war, so we need the permits to shoot. And uh, that was kind of given. And in the same time, in the first six months, we assembled the movie. First cut of the movie was already done in six months, but then... I started to update it, update it, update it, going through festivals and updating the cut. Exactly like Alberto Barbera at Venice said, it's the instant cinema. I just hope that Evgeny not need to update it too often. It's his words and he invited movie without seeing to Venice Film Festival. It was remarkable. But for me, it was the most important challenge. And in the same time, I was rushing to make this because I wanted to give voice to Ukrainian people. I wanted to create human bridges between mothers, between journalists. Now, I will tell you something. I already mentioned that it's a hybrid war. On one side, it's bombs and rockets and missiles and uh, uh, mines on the land. From an, uh, on another angle, it's a uh, camera. It's camera mm -hmm. that became a weapon. It's propaganda. And on the first months, March, April, I think was the biggest loss for the journalists because many journalists, many photojournalists, many filmmakers were killed in Ukraine because I think for Putin, it was real fight against the truth. The yes. journalists try to bring the truth about this full-scale invasion. And I think the most important for them was to bring this truth out to the world, to show what exactly happening. And it was the loss. So that's why I decided to show all parts of this war. And for me, journalists became a key characters in my movie. What journalists like Natasha Nagorne? Yes. She became a main character because she is a soldier of the different type of the war. Yes. I mean, it, the people you follow throughout the film are remarkable, especially the journalist. But I, I have to ask about your process of shooting this, because normally, I mean, I'm sure people know when you're editing a documentary, most of your footage is already in the can before you begin the edit. Your film just seems to have completely come together in real time. You didn't have the material. You didn't even have a beginning, middle and end. There is no middle and end to this war yet. You were trying to craft a structure while the experience itself was happening. I can only imagine how disorienting and creatively challenging and scary that must have been for you. It is. But at the same time, I think when you see Ukrainian people who, despite all the challenges, despite all the horrors, they are smiling, like you've seen in my first scene, smiling yes. and laughing, looking in the, into the enemy's eyes, 
then you're understanding there is no things that are not possible. Everything is possible. When I came to my partners and I said, in six months, we're releasing the movie in the festivals because it's the necessity. And then we started to literally edit the movie. Listen, we started to film in uh, last days of February. We started to edit the movie in June. By 16th of August, we locked the first cut that was presented in Venice. On the 31st of August, I presented uh, to Venice full, ready-to-screen movie from A to Z. So I think you learning to be exactly determined to do things when you're looking at these people who without yes. anything, their hands, ready to defend their motherland. I saw it on Maidan, and I saw it again during this full-scale invasion first days. I got to say, I didn't think I could see a more powerful wartime documentary than Cries from Syria. And I, I think you may have done it here. And I'd also want to say I have great admiration for President Zelensky, but he only shows up briefly in this film. You've said that you weren't trying to bring people into the presidential headquarters here. You wanted this to be about the innocent people, the doctors, the mothers, the journalists, the priests and the children under siege. You never wanted to make this about Zelensky, like a lot of other well-intentioned journalists have made him the focus of the whole story. But I think for me, always, all my movies, again, even Francesco, it's all about people. Even if you yes. take a look at Francesco, it's not about Pope. It's about the status of the world. It's about us, people who created all these scenes. And he generally summarizing certain chapters and saying, hey, we're still able to reverse things if we will start to pay attention to climate change. We can stop uh, disrespecting people and still accept civil unions. We still emphasize the important role of the women. It's something that I learned. It's all about people. And I wanted to yes. give voice for the Ukrainian nation. President Zelensky already had a lot of uh, activity in the media space and people knew him. But I wanted to give literally voice to these people on the streets, people in the trenches, people in the hospitals. And for me, you're seeing him as an ordinary person. You're not seeing him in the headquarters. You're seeing him doing a selfie video. And I think yes. for me, it was important to show everybody as an ordinary Ukrainian citizen, including himself. <laughs> And, and that's what you've done. And it's also a film about the architecture and the culture and the history and the nature that has all been violently broken. And there's times when it's it's not even like it's Ukrainian pride. It's just the whole nation saying nope and 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 pushing these invaders out. And the persistent lie that we've heard in the West, the persistent lie that social media spreads and that you attack in this film is Putin did this to denazify Ukraine. Denazify is like Putin's WMDs. It's the lie he uses to justify the slaughter he wants. Nazi is how Russia gets its troops to dehumanize the Ukraine people. But I, I don't know. Do the people hate Russia? I know they hate Putin and they hate the soldiers. But do they hate Russia as fiercely? I think today Ukrainian people understanding one thing, that it's not Putin who pushes the rifle to fire at the end of the day it's the system that created putin it's the system that allowed this thing to be committed the crimes so i think everybody understanding that it's the russian people instead of standing and fighting against dictatorship they allowing this dictatorship to destroy other countries they just they allowing lies to be spread 
listen, Ukrainian people, despite the high price of the lives, stood for their beliefs in their future in 2013-14 in the square of Maidan. We saw it. We saw how Maidan movie, how My Winch on Fire inspired people in Hong Kong to go against Chinese government, yes. against the draconic laws. We all remember the umbrella movement that was actually inspired by Winch on Fire. We all know the situation in Venezuela. We know what's happening in Lebanon. I know the people who want to stood for their rights, they're doing this. Here, they're understanding that Russians just don't want to do it, and they are taking their rifles and going and following the orders of Putin. So they are exactly committing the same crimes that he committed. Yes, they would. But it seems what's terrifying to me is how pervasive the propaganda is for the Russian troops and Russian people. They're steeped in propaganda. They believe they're killing Nazis. They believe that Ukraine is full of fascists who are killing each other. At one point, we meet Russian citizens on a sunny day watching a Putin military parade, and they all believe that their troops are out there fighting Nazis. People believe a false truth created by the Russian ministry of defense. The people in Ukraine just want the war to be over. But here in the States, we see people on social media spread this Nazi lie and we laugh. We say the president of Ukraine is Jewish. That's preposterous. It's not as funny seeing Russian state TV spread it. And one of the most chilling parts of the film for me was seeing how the official state media is demonizing Ukraine society to divide Ukrainians. And they've been doing it for years. These are the things we don't get in our American news. But we have it on social media. I think yeah. we don't need to go, but we all know QAnon stuff and all other stuff. And we saw it in our own land, in our home land, where we have people who deeply believe in, in QAnon and all other stuff. And it's the effect of social media, where people, instead of to do a fact check, believing in every lie that social media and all kind of groups, specific groups spreading. So I think we already affected by the same disease that Putin created on, on his land. So at the end of the day, like I said, the World War Three already kind of exposed even to our country. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back after this. Is it fair to compare Putin to Hitler after the experiences you've seen? Is it fair to say that he is? I mean, you've said that every century gets its own dictator. Putin is our Napoleon. He's Absolute. our Hitler, right? Yeah. Yeah. You did a great homework because, yes, my own statement is that they will have reincarnation into the human flesh every century. And every century creates a dictator who have imperialistic ambition. In 1812, we had Napoleon, short, educated, who have the desire to destroy all other nations, keep his only nation alive and as the superior nation, and he had imperialistic ambition. It was Napoleon. Century later, 100 years later, we had Hitler, the desire to embrace his own race, destroy other races, and conquire the entire world and have the superiority. Short, educated. 100 years yeah. later, I guess, century, have the Putin, reincarnation of devil into the human flesh. And same thing. Same exact thing. So, and uh, which, you know what? John, Please. and actually, yes. I will give you another thing. The same Hitler published in his book, Main Camp, the theory of big lie that Joseph yes. Goebbels, the head of propaganda, created. The theory of big lie says 
take a lie big enough, repeat it over and over, and it becomes truth. And then the same situation, the same basic theory says another point, that truth is an enemy of the lie. And by extension, truth is an enemy of the state. So it's yes. a state power to go and do everything possible to fight the truth. Come on, that was Hitler. So today, the new Hitler that we just compared Putin to Hitler, the new Hitler of today, yes. 21st century, basically using the same rule, the same things, and applying this to his own people, to his own media, to his own social media, and even expanding this to the other countries. Absolutely. How scary was it for you, sir, and your crew on the ground shooting? What was to you the most horrific moment that you or your crew experienced? Explosions. You don't know sometimes where to expect the bullet come, or sometimes you don't know where to expect the the drone come with some explosive, or because drones are the eyes, and that's the eyes that trying to follow you and then kill you, and it's yes. the most dangerous. Or missiles. So I had missiles exploded not far from me when I was doing interviews. So it's it's scary. It's scary. Mm. But at the same time, you do cautious here. What is more strange sometimes to think, yes, here you cautious and you risking your life. But then when you come into the United States, and I'm going back to our Independence Day last year at Chicago, when you relax to celebrating something and you're completely not in a war zone and you're getting killed in a Chicago in a park. So I think sometimes you don't know where you can be killed and where is your luck. But yes, it's a war. And it's scary. I can tell you the truth. Can I ask you a storytelling question? I'm, I'm curious how your narrative emerged. Obviously, we pray we're in latter days of this war. I hope we're not still in the early time of this war. But you're trying to put together a story. You're trying to have a three-act structure for your film while the war is still unfolding before your eyes. How did you begin to assemble the narrative? And how did you begin to find a beginning, middle, and end for something that may not be over for such a long time? What was the experience like for you of realizing this is how we're going to plot this? I will tell you, when I started last year, I already knew what I wanted to say. For me, the biggest thing was that through the eight years between 14, when the war started on the 20th of February, when Maidan ended, and 20, 22, uh, 24th of February, basically, we had eight years of nobody talking about this war. Even... Yes. MH17 kind of was neglected and all the signs of the war on Donetsk, Donbass, Donetsk airport, Dibalti, all kind of was neglected. The fact of the war was neglected and the crimes been unpunished. And I think for me, it was important to remind this to the world. So I knew that I wanted to go back to, in the history and somehow connect dots to Maidan. So I already knew this chapter in a movie. The question was, if I want to do it as the chapters or if I want to find the characters that can right. lead me uh, into this main chapter of the current war that was of 2022 and how I'm doing this. And then I realized I need to get somebody like a journalist and probably uh, somebody from the military who can follow these eight years and be also active in a current situation. And yes. then I came with the idea of the war journalist, 
that was on the ground of Maidan and also on the grounds of the war through the eight years and the current war. And that's how I got to Natasha. Natasha I saw actually on, um, on Maidan Square. And for me, I reached different channels. I saw different journalists, but Natasha was my favorite choice. I wanted a women because for me, since Syria, the idea of some kind of resemblance of Marvin Cohen, who I was literally in love as the icon of journalism, war journalism. So Natasha was for me a perfect choice. And then I wanted somebody from military, but I realized that I wanted uh, somebody probably also like a priest. And that's how yes. the idea of uh, chaplain came to me, military chaplain, because it was also on Maidan. And, uh, because I wanted something spiritual and at the same time something military. So Andre came also into my mind. And that's how I ended with these two characters uh, as leading characters through the story. And yes. uh, then I started to look for the stories that can lead me also through these eight years. That's how Stas came into the picture. Now, for example, I have a remarkable interview with the Stas. Stas was one of the first soldiers, by the way. I'm talking about the guy on the one leg. Uh, yes. Who, and Bucha, I have the interview that is not in the movie, but he was one of the uh, soldiers uh, who entered the Bucha first, and he was a remarkable uh, character. So it was interesting how I was like looking for the specific stories to craft the narrative through the eight years of the war that nobody saw, plus to do a major overview of the current war. Yes. And uh, that's how we started to structure now. When I finished first cut of the movie, it was um, it was ending in Nikolaev, and it was ending literally last shot was six of August, and I I tried to keep it as the war going, but Ukraine will win with Natasha. Then in the beginning of this year, we recutted things, and I added more new stuff, and uh, I showed first victories, I showed how they freed territories and so on, so on, so how the first soldiers been returned back. So that was the second version of the movie. Then wow. recently, I saw that all world talking about counteroffensive, but people can see the counteroffensive, the dam explosion and, and more things. And, and uh, I decided, okay, I will show the counteroffensive. So Ukrainian war kind of change the sides and Ukrainians are attacking right now, not just defending. And for me, it was a sign, okay, we're going towards the victory. The question when this victory will go in, and uh, make all Russians to be out of the Ukrainian land, but it will happen. And that's how I decided to end the movie and finally release it. Because in today's world, I see the necessity to remind the people that the world need to talk about Ukraine. The world need to remember that there is a war. Because if yes. we repeat creation of 2014, when we neglected this war, what will be next escalation? What will be next escalation? Next will be one of the NATO countries, and then we will be in the middle of the World War Three. Today we are maybe at the beginning, and we still can prevent a lot to happen if we will all stand together with Ukrainian people and help them to win. But if we will neglect this again, like in 2014, then tomorrow, whom we will blame? Ourselves? Hmm. 
Natasha is one of uh, my favorite characters in the film, and she's someone in the course of the film who says, true courage is when you are afraid, but still act. And later, when we see her almost crack her composure, giving a report and a soldier kind of cheers her on, it's one of the emotional high points of the film. It's amazing how many beautiful moments of grace and beauty you found in the course of this. I'm so grateful to you for making the time to us, but it seems to me in closing that you dedicated this film to the journalists who are risking their life. It seems that you made this film because truth is the theme of this film and getting the truth out there. I think it's important to remind, specifically in America, that we are entering election year and our elections suffering from the lies. Our elections in America suffered from the lies in the previous elections and elections before. And I think we need all to learn where we get information, how we can do fact check. We need to be less lazy and more vigilant because today truth is commodity. And today we are in World War III. And maybe we not have mines and bombs on our homeland, but we do have cameras that became a weapon. We do have a big lie theory basically exploited on our own motherland. And we all became a victims of this disease of propaganda. So I think we need to be vigilant and we really need to start to pay attention to the truth. And I'm really thankful for the true journalists who today giving their lives and fighting for the truth on the front lines and bringing news from Gaza Strip or from Ramallah or from the middle of the war conflicts in Syria, which is still going and nobody's talking about sea. That's right. Or from other places in the world. And from Ukraine, where I am right now. And I think that's why my admiration to the other journalists, journalists, filmmakers, who without boundaries of their networks, bringing the truth to the audience, educating and allowing to the people see what they're not seeing in an ordinary screen of TV network today. And it is one of the most powerful documentaries about war I have ever witnessed. I can see why Pope Francesco wanted to show this film at the Vatican. Evgeny Afanivsky, it's always an honor to have you. Thank you so much for joining us once again. You can see and, the And film. you can see arm uh, right now, the siren. Yes. You may hear this. Yeah. The siren. So I need to bomb shelter. Yeah. <laughs> The film is Freedom on Fire, Ukraine's Fight for Freedom. It's available um, on uh, on demand and will be in theaters, of course, very, very soon. Sir, it's an honor to have you. I hope you're safe. I hope your crew is safe. And thank you for making such essential cinema and inspiring so much of us. Thank you. Thank you. And I hope I will have more choices to bring my movies to you and tell stories with you together. I look forward to having you back in our studio. And I want to hear some stories about the Pope when you get back. Thank you very much. Thanks. 